Greetings, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit around and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm sorry if I'm sounding slightly gruffer than usual. I have a slight throat condition, but otherwise, I am battling onwards. How are you doing? I'm tickety-boo. Tickety-boo is excellent. Are you ready to discuss money? I'm sure, yeah. How much you got for me? Oh, about four pound ninety nine if you're lucky. So that's oh, okay. that's uh, or swap for an old Ford Cortina. Yeah. Can I at this point before we start say that uh, of course there's lots of songs that reference money, and that uh, one of the most irritating is the Pink Floyd one from Dark Side of the Moon, which has some of the most trite lyrics you have ever come across in your life. Uh, Roger Waters, if anything else, is the ultimate sixth form poet. Just wanted to say that. All right. Thank you for thank you for. Um... Losing a large chunk of our audience there. <laughs> I'm sure there must be some kind of overlap. Not that I in any way disagree with the statement you have just made. Uh, but anyway, let's actually talk about the Beatles. So let's actually talk about their version of Money. That's what I want. So, yeah, it's it's the last track on the album. We are almost done with the album now. And this is how things round out. Um, good album closer? Well, I mean, before we even get on to, to where it's positioned... I'm trying to work out whether this is the first Beatles song that doesn't fall into that I love you, you love me sort of thing. I suppose Roll Over Beethoven um, it kind of yeah, is not uh, one of those trite songs about love. So it's quite nice to have a different topic, I guess. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's different. It's great. But it's also um, effectively... How can we put this? Twist and Shout was a very successful album closer. And this is as close to Twist and Shout as you're going to get, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, very much. And it's it's very much a case of with the Beatles following the same template as, as Please Please Me. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a great album closer, though. Like, if you're going to go out, go out in a storm. And whilst the last couple of tracks that we've covered have been, how can we say it, a, a little less than stellar? Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say that that this this is really it's such a such a powerhouse ending to the album, and uh, it, it's I'm going to go ahead and give George Martin credit for this because I'm assuming that nobody from the Beatles was actually involved in the sequencing, um, but it does show attention as being put uh, into where these tracks fall, and yeah, it's exactly the same as as uh, as Please Please Me with a taste of honey, and there's a place immediately preceding. Uh, Twist and Shout, which is you know neither of which are that are that album's best songs, and here we have Devil in a Heart, uh, and not a second time. Same, neither of those are really highlights of the album. Um, but we allow that slight slackening of momentum before we get the sudden punch of the final track, and and money is all punch. Yeah, in fairness, that's probably something we'll forget to talk about in the next episode where we uh, um, discuss the album as a whole. But it's an interesting point, isn't it, to think that of course that later on they have such complete creative control that every decision would be theirs and almost certainly theirs alone. But at this stage, they're not even present when the album's being mixed. So, you know, their their element of control is is much less. So it sort of makes sense that it's a, shall we say, a studio decision in terms of, well, this has been successful. Let's do it again, folks. And that makes sense. But on the other hand, this is a song that they've been playing for years and years and years. And it really shows. That's that's the thing about it, that you can tell how kind of uh, practiced that they are at it, how they've really worked out how everything uh, is going to go. And, and it's delivered with such 
energy and enthusiasm there's just such a, a sense of drive and, and rhythm to it and um you know just it, it, it's just almost frustrating in a way that we've had to slog through <laughs> you know much aside too which hasn't been uh particularly remarkable only in the sense that you know everything the beatles record is remarkable in some way but you know you know it's just such a, a kind of return to form at the end of the album and yet first song recorded well yeah uh, there is that um and also it's one that they've recorded before um so not only is it one of their most played live tracks according to set list um but also it's on the Decca tapes and it sounds very very different on the Decca tapes and that sort of leads me to the partial assumption that one of the key reasons for that is not the extra 18 months or whatever it is of um of gigs and recording and success and increased confidence but george martin because the piano makes a massive difference on this track it really does it's almost kind of honky-tonk sort of piano style but just that yeah. that one sort of little lead line there it, it it gives just that added dimension and i mean i don't i, I well i'll ask you shortly but i mean like my impression of the the Decca tapes is like, you know, general reaction as well. You know, oh God, how could Decca have been so stupid as to turn down the Beatles? But if you listen to the Decca tapes, I don't think it's that hard to understand. They're not very good. Um, and, you know, the difference in that 18 months between the two versions of money is such a, a clear indicator of that. And yeah, I agree. I think, I think the difference is George Martin. When you've got somebody who's sympathetic to the material that they're producing, who actually has a rapport with the band, which isn't just, you know, the guy that sits behind the glass, but where there's a genuine, mm -hmm. you know, spark, a genuine creative musical connection between them. And somebody who's then able to knock out fairly effortlessly, I would suggest this piano line that just transforms the song. It's just, that's, that's the difference. And it, it really is. It's, I mean, you know, you can talk about genius clusters and, and all this kind of thing. But in the end, whether you want to call it coincidence, whether you want to say that there's something else, it's it's that extra spark. And, and, and it's George Martin that's that's providing this. And, and I mean, I, I adore the Beatles version of Money uh, on, on this album. Um, but yeah, it's such a stark contrast to the Decca tapes. But um, yeah, how, how, how do you find the Decca tapes? Um, bland, a bit dull. Um, some of that can just be the quality of the recording. Um but it's, you know, they hadn't spent a huge amount of time in a recording studio. And the interesting thing about the Decca tapes is the sheer number of songs that, that they actually, um, that they put out um, or that they recorded for Decca. And there's such a range in there as well. And you almost get the feeling that there aren't enough songs like Money on it. And there's too many of the the sort of the, the ballady old standards types because perhaps they weren't really sure, or maybe Brian Epstein wasn't really sure what Decca would be after, but they wouldn't make that mistake a second time. Um, um, although, of course, it's still a, a case of it being fairly fortuitous how they managed to get signed um, in the first place. But, you know, so, um, yeah, it's it's interesting, but it's, it's certainly it's not an, an essential listen. You're, you're going to hear glimpses of what made them good but you know this this recording of money on the album is just a world away from um you know the original decca tapes it's just so so different worth mentioning that um 
you know, one of the reasons why I think George Martin is is so um, so much the the figure behind it is is that just almost like a counterpoint of a of a piano line, which sounds really um, really odd when you listen to it isolated, and you can of course, thanks to the power of the internet and the almighty YouTube, listen to the the rhythm section, listen to the guitars, listen to the piano, and listen to the vocals. And actually, I I did do it in that order. And after I'd listened to both the rhythm section and the guitar, uh, the guitars, I, I was starting to think, what is it that actually makes this song good? Then the the piano really picks it up, even though, you know, it's quite repetitious and it's quite sort of awkward listening to that over and over again for two and a half minutes. Um, you know, so it, that is the thing that really drives the song. But then what can I say? The, the vocal track is the thing that brings it all together. The vocals on this are, um, you know, a cut above anything else I think Lennon has done up to this point. They are just magnificent and and powerful, um, almost as though he means it, almost <laughs> as though money is exactly what he wants. Imagine that. Well, it does help that he sounds invested in it. But, you know, I mean, fair enough. You know, the, none of them were shy in 1963, 1964 about the fact that one of the things they would be able to get out of being a successful band was money. You know, Lennon gave that interview to the NME, which was, you know, what, you know, what do you, what do you want? And, and his reply was, yeah, fame and money. Well, OK, that's clear. It's <laughs> clear enough. But, you know, fair enough, uh, you know, especially for. For four guys who come from, I was going to say come from a working class background. That's not strictly accurate. Ringo did, and the others are various flavors of lower middle class. Yeah. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, people who didn't come from a privileged background particularly, of course, they're going to want things which are going to make their life easier. And, you know, Lennon really lets rip on this. And, and it, it's clearly it's clearly something that matters to him. He's, he's not faking this one. There's no schmaltzy... Uh, you know, cod sentiments or self-pity here, this is what he wants and he is going to tell us about it in the most direct way possible. But, like, I completely agree. Like, the strength of his vocal performance in this is outstanding. It's this that I I would also agree that I don't think there's anything else that's come close to touching this from Lennon. And, and I think we should also, you know, allow him to change his mind. You know, because after all... Oh, yeah, of course. We're, we're not going to hold him to all of his views, because I think in the last episode we alluded to the fact that... Uh, or maybe it was a conversation that we had. Of course, you've got You Can't Do That uh, coming up, um, um, you know, reasonably soon. Um, and, and that's, you know, quite heavily uh, laden with misogyny. But you certainly wouldn't be able to accuse Lennon of that, say, into the into the 70s and some of his... Um, recordings are actually, you know, trying to basically say, hey, everyone, let's treat everybody nicely, folks. You know, he, he's allowed to change his mind. He's allowed to then go from money, that's what I want to imagine, no possessions. You know, that's fine. You know, isn't that um, emotional maturity? After all, you never know. There's a possibility that 64 and a half million people who currently think that our current Prime Minister Liz Truss is the most useless person on this planet, some of them might change their minds in the next few weeks. Uh, yeah, we should say at, uh, Prime Minister at time, at of, time recording. of recording. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that is a very important caveat. Uh, yeah, but obviously, no, you're right. I mean, um, you know, Lenin takes a lot of stick for, for his, uh, you know, for his misogyny and his attitude to women. 
in in the sixties, and there's obviously plenty of justification for that. Um, but you know, he does grow and develop. He eventually apologizes to the way that you know, you know for his treatment to uh, to Julia and to Julian and the kids and all the rest of it. So you know, yeah, he he does he does go through a period of emotional growth, and you can't you know you you can't deny that. However. Um, Again, it's the old Elvis Costello line. It's easy for the the, the millionaire to say, "Imagine no possessions." But, uh, yeah. but you know, but you know, fine, yeah. whatever. I mean, um, as far as this song goes, nineteen sixty three, he means it. He wants his money, and yeah. and it's it's kind of hard to it's hard to argue with him in in, in that sense. Um, and although his you know his vocal is amazing in this, and I'm not—I don't in any way want to take away from that. But McCartney deserves some real credit in the vocal front as well. Like his backing vocals in this are really amazing, and it's another one of those times where he has the opportunity to demonstrate the strength of his voice. Um, but it's kind of—I mean, obviously it's it's backgrounded. It's a background vocal next to Lennon's, um, but it just shows how strong his voice is. He's—he is a really, really good. Uh, you know, vocalist, and he doesn't always get credit for that. Sometimes he will, um, but it's in songs like this that you can see what a good utility player he can be as well, because he's not taking anything away from the power of Lennon's lead vocal. Lennon's vocal is is just the most dominant thing in this track, um, but the support that he gives and the strength of his voice on on the backing vocal is just amazing. It really, it, it's like the piano line. It just adds so much more dimension to it. I think the difference for me in this is the fact that that when he's holding a note or when he's holding in on a word like money and want, he's sustaining it rather than jumping around between yes. notes. And and because I think when he when he has to to demonstrate a range and go from you know low to high or, or whatever, he he struggles. The intonation struggles, but actually it's it's a lot more powerful here because it's sustained. And, and he can do that. That's that. That's great, and it really, really works. Um, you know, the the backing vocals. You know, I, I I don't really notice quite so much. Just like, you know, I, I don't really think there's that much to notice outside of of the piano. Everything else just keeps it going. It's almost as though they recognise the fact that actually these bits of the song are really important. These bits are purely functional, and let's not muck around with it too much, and just get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here's the inevitable question that we kind of have to brush up against when we're talking about covers. Do, do you think it's better than the original? Um, yeah. Is it the best version of it? No. Ah, well, no, that's a very, very much a separate question. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess I know what you're thinking here. Well, I mean, it did come up in a in a previous episode. I can't remember. It may even have been the, the Twist and Shout one. When I I um, I did mention um, what I thought it was, um, okay. So I mean, in terms of the original, you know, it's fine. It's quite interesting actually that um, that you know the legendary Barrett Strong was not really a successful recording artist. You know, much more as a um, as a lyricist. Yeah. Um, but it's it's his song, and um, you know whether or not he actually contributed to the writing of it. Um, is a, although he has a credit, is apparently uh, something that's that's disputed. But you know the name is on it, um, and and it's fine. You know, good singer. Um, it works. It's powerful. And and actually, this this is where you know it, we we said that stuff 
you know, semi-jokingly about um, Lennon and money earlier. Of course, it is a cover. It's not as though Lennon sat down and thought, well, what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to write a um, an early version of Working Class Hero. Hey, brilliant, let's do it. Um, but interesting that he selected a song that was already there that was about money and we could do a we could do a social history bit here couldn't we about how you know um at this we point could. maybe um you know people were starting to have more disposable income and enjoying themselves in new and different ways invention of the teenager etc 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 all of that sort of thing so you know it actually could have been a generation that was starting to get a bit of money and getting money for the sake of having money and then using it for entertainment using it to to live the kind of life that their parents perhaps weren't able to live you know in a world that was growing in consumer uh consumer products and you know in fact records being the perfect example of it um but i think barrett strong as a person is just really really interesting when you think of the people he worked with when you think of the songs he was responsible for for co-writing like yeah, um, Papa was a Rolling Stone, heard it through the grapevine and war. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's and there's tons more beside that. Um, and, and I think it just makes him a really interesting person. And bear in mind, we've gone from um, uh, what was the last song here? JG, help me out. Well, the last song that we we recorded, yeah, uh, yeah, not a second time. No, 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 it's the one before that. It's Devil in a Heart. Devil in a Heart. The one that's the Donnays cover. Yeah, um, you know, from a from a band that released one song, well, one single, to covering something that is by such a legendary figure, um, and not just in the in the kind of like the the Chuck Berry you know rollover Beethoven. It's, it's, it's something that's a bit kind of cliched these days about Chuck Berry it doesn't quite work you know he has this reputation amongst early rock and rollers but actually that reputation hasn't really sort of kept on and yet if you were to sit people down and say okay right well um, the person who originally released this was also responsible for writing uh, the words to I heard it through the grapevine they might go ah right okay there's something in that you know, they might actually therefore recognise something of the power of it because of the bits that they, they do actually know. And and also worth pointing out that um, he's quite possibly one of the few songwriters that the Beatles recorded um, who is uh, referenced in a Billy Bragg song. Excellent. Um, so uh, answers on a postcard, listener. <laughs> or, if we remember... At the end of the episode. Okay, well, we'll see if we can manage a callback. That's that. That'll be quite the achievement. Uh, but I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Barrett Storm is such a fascinating individual, um, and I do really like that recording. I do really like the original yeah. recording. Um, again, it's it's kind of different in the way um, that we often find with the Beatles recordings. That they, they they do um, they do manage to take something of the original song, retain it, and then also do something different with it. And um, much much though I like the original, I, I don't think that there's much question that the Beatles version is, is better. It's certainly far, far more powerful. It's got far more drive to it. Um, and it's sort of spiky and angular and, and all these other lovely, lovely things. And and the, the Brad Strong version, is it is really good. Um, I think it's maybe more... Um, 
musically accomplished in the sense that I think it's I think the musicianship is probably more finely crafted on it but then again I think the whole point of the Beatles version is that it isn't well crafted it's crude and it's angry well not angry it's crude and it's 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 full of desire and it's full of passion and and so that kind of slightly more crafted musicianship wouldn't sit as comfortably with the with the Beatles version even again that yeah that honky-tonk piano it's not a it's not a classical piano it's not a, a normal kind of instrument it's got that slightly grungy kind of edge to it um, and that fits in very well with the way um, that the Beatles have have uh, have chosen to to put this song together it is it is an astonishing recording but speaking of astonishing recordings shall we shall we tip our hat shall we tip our hat to the uh, to the flying lizards I think we should. I think we, I think should we as absolutely well. should. I think there are um, there are, maybe things have changed in the last however many years, but um, I, I think there are there are a few covers that sort of take a song and update it to the time as well as um, the Flying Lizards cover of this because it is uh, it's seventy nine and it's it's really difficult to describe it's stark but it also uses technology emerging technology in a in a brilliant way um you know with the sound of the drum in particular um it does something completely different with both the um the lead vocals and the backing vocals um you know it, it's got a a sense of disdain towards um, I don't know if it's towards the audience or towards the subject um, that is, is... It's very ambiguous. It, it is, but it's it's really kind of, you know, arty, but also clever. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, thinking that um, it's the kind of thing that perhaps the, the art of noise might have done or the yeah. KLF might have done um, at some point. Um, I mean, I love it. And, and what I can't quite remember is, I mean, I would have been, um, you know, six or seven when it was originally released, depending on when in, in 79 it came out. Um, and But it's something that I I was aware of from a young age, but I can't remember if it was from 79 or whether it then started being used elsewhere, um, you know, as um, as a result. And, and it's still being used. It's now in um, an ASDA advert. Um, you know, which is obviously it's ironic, but um, you know, it, it it has something about it. And and what I find it okay, right? So let's let's recap. It's interesting <laughs> that when as when Asda's advertising team were sitting down and thinking, right, okay, what can we use for our new reward um, scheme, loyalty scheme, which is instead of giving people points, is giving them money. Right? We need something about money. Let's go for the song "Money." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Beatles did that. Well, should we use that one? Should we use Barrett Strong? Oh no, no, Led Zeppelin did it as well with that slow, grimy, dirty, funky kind of version. Should we use that? No, no. Let's use the really quirky, weird one from 1979 because it fits. It really works. And then they clearly built an advert around it, which sort of makes it seem like a you know, 80s, maybe early 90s video game as well. People going around the supermarket, picking up coins as they go. It it just works. And and it works in, in so many different ways. And, and the, um, you know, it seems to be the go-to version of it that people use, which I think is is fascinating. And that's kind of why I think it is, in, in the end, just more effective than the Beatles one. 
it's the one that people remember. It is. It is utterly, utterly brilliant. I, I, I would. I would just maybe also bear in mind the fact that it probably is slightly cheaper to license the Flying Lizards yeah, version well, than Led Zeppelin or the Beatles, so probably... Don't, don't probably ruin a good argument. <laughs> Sorry, no, I, I mean, I agree with the argument, but, you know, I would feel remiss in my duty if I didn't possibly uh, flag that as a as a, as a as another reason. Um, but, yeah, everything about that version is just... It's just so incredible. The absolute disdain and that the best things in life are free kind of dismissive, kind of almost almost sort of Germanic kind of delivery. And, and it's kind of very austere. And yeah, like Art of Noise is such a good point of comparison as well. I completely agree with that. This kind of, it, it's not really even traditional instruments. It's kind of constructed from, you know, banging on pots and pans and all the rest of it. It's There's very little traditional instrumentation. It's a brilliant version. I think if it's not the best cover version of all that all time, it must be in like the top five or something. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's literally that yeah. good. It's utterly incredible. I think it's in terms of why it hung around. I mean, I, I would have definitely have been six in, in 1979 when this was released. And I remember it well into the eighties, still hanging around. Um, I, it used to get played a lot on, on like uh, jukeboxes with 45 okay. uh, RPMs. And I know that uh, it hung around for a lot. That, I remember the video very vividly as well. They're sort of sitting in a kitchen, literally kind of banging on kettles and pots and stuff. It's unbelievably cheap. It must have cost about £3.99 or something. Um, but again, it's utterly perfect for the song. It's just full of sort of derision and contempt and a kind of very punk attitude, but it doesn't sound anything like punk at all. It's, of course, it's extremely new wave. Um it's just glorious. It's just one of the most glorious records ever recorded. And I couldn't possibly love it more. It's, it's quite difficult to find information out um, about them, actually. Yeah, they're pretty obscure. Yeah, which is um, which is a real shame because I would be interested in in knowing a bit more. Because if, if you do some very, very kind of basic research, you know, one of the places where you can get that sort of information, because you're looking at Wikipedia, and there's a suggestion, an implication that the likes of Robert Fripp at one point were involved, and, and even Michael Nyman. Now, I don't think, I can't believe that that's accurate in any way, shape or form. Um, but, you know, it I'd just like to know a little bit more. It, it would be kind of fascinating. But yeah, I agree. They're very kind of obscure. They're not really um, well documented. But, you know, fair enough. Like they had one hit, which was, you know, a, a middling success and it's hung around and kind of popular culture i mean even even sort of beyond that it gets used in tv shows and you know it's it's a very kind of go-to sort of song um but it was one hit and you know they released what three albums four albums i think in yeah. total um none of which uh other than the the first one the one that this was from none of which um charted anywhere as far as i can establish so you know sometimes sometimes that's the fate of a band they can they can knock out one killer track and and then just sort of fade from history and that seems to be how it is for the for the Flying Lizards. But, you know, if you're going to have one track to your name, you couldn't really do much better than this one. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair enough. Yeah. Oh, well. Maybe I'll um, I'll go looking them up on various streaming services. Um, although, in reality, yeah, I probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. But uh, actually, one thing that you mentioned that is, is worth going back to in terms of the Beatles is that they... I mean, not just the fact that they, they, you know, it's one of their most played live tracks, um, but it is also one that they chose 
to record on the first day of of, um, of album sessions. You know, it was the second song, um, and and I think that's that's really important. I'm going to go from you really got a hold on me um, into into money. Um, so, and in fact, you know, it's weird. Again, we'll talk about this more on, on the next one. You know, they're they're basically doing a day of of covers. I don't know whether that that was deliberate or whether that was sort of designed just to get them um you know into the recording of it but you've got um, really got hold of me money devil in a heart until there was you um as the songs recorded on on day one uh, of the sessions um which does kind of undermine my argument doesn't it if you've got um devil in a heart until there was you but, but then we're looking at it from our <laughs> point of view mccartney loved to, um till there was you that was that was one of the big ones that that he um he loved to sing um, I suppose because there was that that sort of show tunes connection to the songs that he learned as as a kid, um, but it clearly meant something to them. Yeah, I know absolutely. Um, yeah, like you say, we'll, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that and on uh, on the next episode. But you know, as far as money's concerned, like if you want to get your album off to kind of like a roaring start, if you want to feel that you you know you've built something and and get your confidence up and your energy up and and really get stuck in, I mean. Yeah, if if your first one two punches is, is money and uh, you really got a hold on me, I mean, you know, you're doing okay. That's that's a pretty good way to get your album started. Thing is though, and and I think this is quite surprising. Looking at some of those set lists, assuming they are accurate, what you might find surprising is that the Beatles would regularly open with Twist and Shout and then follow it with Money. Yeah, which must have been great on Lennon's voice. Yeah, especially in in what is just a um, a, you know, a ten song set. Um, but you know that's fine. I, I clearly enjoyed doing it. But um, you know, so it's at the end, and this, perhaps this is another reason why you know you might suggest that it's George Martin who's done the the track listing here, because the Beatles thought enough of it to to whack it at the start of their gigs, um, whereas actually then. Um, you know, you look at um, the album and, and it's at the end. So, you know, an opener, but a closer in the recording studio. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with that, of course. And, and, and yeah, well, rather than repeat ourselves and, and the glory that is George Martin, we can we can use that as the end of the album and indeed the end of the episode. So score, please, Mr. <laughs> Just score, please, mister. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I'm I'm going to give it a very, very healthy seven. Um, primarily seven. because it's, it's you know, we've still got, we've still got a lot of room for, you know, classic songs. And we've got to leave somewhere to go for those eight, nine and, and those tens. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Um no, I also have to give it. What did I, let me have a little list. look at my magic list here. Uh, ooh, let's see, let's see, let's see. I think I'll give it seven and a half. I agree. It also needs somewhere to go, uh, but at the same time, I think this is just such a such a brilliant recording. Um, the only song on this album I've given more to is you really got a hold of me. So actually, yeah, I'm fine with that. So seven and a half from me. Very good. Very good. I suppose at this point, um, you know, people have obviously uh, tweeted in and and already sent their emails. So, of course, it's worth pointing out that the uh, the answer to the quiz question is, of course, uh, Levi Stubbs Tears um, for the glorious middle eight 
in which Billy Bragg um, basically points out the fact that however miserable your life is, that there are these great songwriters who are, are there to make everything OK. And in fact, it says Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong are here to make everything right that's wrong. Holland, Holland and Lamont Dozier, too, are here to make it all OK with you. And I couldn't agree more. Wow, fantastic. And thank you for being professional enough to remember to give us the callback that we were otherwise going no, to Hang on, you were going to pick <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, uh, No, no, I'm... I'm uh, yeah, yeah, well, yes, all right, find me. <laughs> okay, right. Brilliant. Okay, let's wrap things up there then. Uh, you can contact us by email. We are Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find my blog at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Also, please check out my other podcast, Talking Trek to You, where a noob and an expert, me apparently, go through the original Star Trek episode by episode. For this podcast, please like, rate and review us on whatever podcatcher you're using so that more people can find the show. We are done with With the Beatles now, but we're also not quite done with With the Beatles this time because next episode... We're going to be talking about with the Beatles, as in the entire album. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.